Friends, Brian here for Yes, You Can Play Guitar. And this interview I did with Phil Demmel, many of you out there would know Phil from his time with the band Violence. He's still in Violence. Also the band Machine Head. This was, this was a big, big interview for me. You know, it's funny when you do YouTube channels, podcasting. It's kind of funny when you contact certain parties. Some people, it's super easy. Some people, you're, it's a bit of a fight to schedule things, which is fine. People are very busy. And sometimes you'll take the time to contact someone and they don't even respond. You know, it, I always, when I do my podcasts, when I get, when I get interviews, I always try to be professional. I, I don't like contacting people on their social media or bugging them that way. I always try and find like a professional either management or, or an email to contact them. And Phil was just a joy. You know, I, I have been a fan of the band Violence since 1988. I have fond memories of when I was just starting to really get going on guitar, learning some of the riffs by ear, you know, sitting <laughs> in my bedroom with my guitar and an old tape player and rewinding it and going over it and over it and over it. And uh, I love that band. You know, I was as you guys know, I'm a big proponent of Bay Area thrash bands, and I love that band, and I love Violence, and I love Phil Demmel's playing. I thought he was a really under-acknowledged guitar player, although, you know, he always had a sponsorship with Jackson, even back then. Uh, and then I remember when he joined Machine Head, you know, he had played with Rob Flynn in Violence, and then when they reconnected Machine Head, I just remember being so excited, so happy for him. I'm like, yes, this guy's amazing. He's going to get his due. And he's reunited with Rob Flynn, you know, uh, the Demel Flynn double axe attack. You know, they were another famous, great thrash guitar duo. You know, you have, uh, you know, Kerry King and Jeff Hanneman. You've got, you know, Hetfield and Hammett. You've got Skolnick and Peterson. You know, Holt and Hunolt, you know, and I, I, I always knew Phil would be a really good interview. But, you know, after he left Machine Head, Phil has done a lot of interviews. He's extremely generous with his time. He's just, you know, he's just a great guy. <laughs> that if there, you know, for anyone who's ever met Phil or spent a few moments with him, I'm very fortunate. I had about an hour and a half of time with him. He was just a great guy. And, and he, that's just, that's just how he is. And uh, uh, it was such a, you know, I really value the time I had with him to talk to him. Um, I tried not to fanboy out, but he was he was great. And anyway, the point I'm trying to get to is I made an effort to, I really made an effort to ask Phil about questions that either he wasn't asked before or not asked very often to make it more interesting for him. So, I'm going to be completely honest with you guys, okay? And I talked to Phil about this before we started recording. Phil was in Machine Head for a long time. You know, we were all happy that him and Rob Flynn reunited, reconnected. But, you know, on a much smaller level, okay, being a small regional musician, I've had gigs where I've worked in bands and, you know, there's, there's bullshit management, you know, just crap, you know, going on. Uh, you know, I remember getting ready to go to gigs and getting stupid emails that, you know, from management that would, you know, they're just trying to mess with your head. I remember playing with a fellow uh, on the country circuit and he was a really good talent. He had his, 
you know, I think he and I could have really built something really big and special together on the regional circuit. But, you know, he just, there was just always crap. And, you know, I remember one time we were at a gig, a very important A-club gig, and we're getting ready to go. There's like over a thousand people there in this club. I've seen some of the wildest fights at this place. But it was in Oshawa, Canada, which is near Toronto. And it, we're, we're getting ready to go on stage. We're, they're announcing the band. We're getting ready to go on. He looks at me and says, you know, the solo you play in this song, I hate it. And we walk out and play. <laughs> and I'm like, it was just crap like that all the time. You know, and I remember just getting to the point going, you know what? This is a good paying gig. But I can't stand this guy. I'm ready to knock him out. And because every week there was BS. You know, it couldn't just be, let me do my job. Let me. So when you get to the point where you start to have that friction or you start to not like the person, you know, a band is like a relationship. And, and you know, a lot of people who watch from the outside who are fans, they don't, sometimes they don't see that. They don't see all these things that go on behind the scene. So when people would keep asking Phil about, oh, do you think things with you and Rob will ever work out? Do you ever think you're... The fan in me, the fan in me goes, yes. And I told Phil this in person. The fan in me understands why people ask that. But the veteran musician in me, who's seen a lot, understands when, when you just don't have that like for that person anymore, going to those gigs is not fun. And it's just it just happens. So when people would keep asking him about him and Rob Flynn... I would cringe. I'd be like, oh, just leave it be, man. It didn't work out. He needed out. And he still stuck around for a tour for like a year after he already said he was leaving. Like that says a lot about his character. But I know what it's like going to a gig, going, man, I don't like this guy. You know, God, I got to keep my temper and my composure all night when I want to, you know, drop my guitar and knock this guy out. And it's not fun. But what you're thinking is, well, I got to pay bills. I got mouths to feed. I got, so if I just put up with him for a little bit longer, you know, I can pay this, I can pay that, or I can prepare to do this to make the jump financially, but it's not a good feeling. So Phil and I talked about that in person before. So I actually kind of refrained from asking him too many questions about Machine Head. We do talk about Rob a little bit in a positive light and a few things about Machine Head. And let me tell you guys, Rob Flynn is an amazing musician. I've been a fan of his playing long before he was in Machine Head. And maybe one day I'll have him on my channel too, and we can get some of his perspective. But but it was all positive with Phil. He was a great guy. And we talked about so much, <laughs> everything from, you know, his roots, how he started learning on guitar, to hockey. He was a big hockey fan. He is a big hockey fan. We, we talked about a lot of different things. He was just a great guy. And I'll always value the time I had to talk to him. I'm meeting him by Zoom and you know, when you when you look up to all these players and then you're in the Zoom room waiting for them and all of a sudden they show up and it's like Phil Demel entering the room. It's like it's it's a weird feeling, but it's a cool feeling, but at the same time it's like, oh man, it's Phil. So but anyway, I got you guys, I could talk forever about this. It was, was this was an important one for me. I hope you guys like it. If you want to support me and my channel, you can just go to my YouTube channel. Yes, you can play guitar. Hit subscribe. If you want to take it a step further, check out my Patreon or just donate to the channel. That's fantastic. Because let me tell you, folks, we don't make the money on YouTube that people think we make, especially if you're like a small to medium channel. It's not what people, you don't make the money people think. So when people donate, subscribe, all that, it means a lot to me. So for all you Thrash fans out there, this is my interview. A seasoned professional guitar player. 
talking to the one and only, the man himself, Phil Demo. Remember, guys, practice hard, practice smart. We'll see you soon. Friends, Brian here for Yes, You Can Play Guitar and my friends. You know me. On this channel, we do musical journeys. I do reactions. I do interviews. I do guitar lessons, guitar tips. We've checked out a lot of amazing artists, a lot of deep dives. But at heart, you all know me. I'm a Bay Area thrash guy. I cannot put into words. I can't put into words. The thrill, the honor it is to have this man on our show today from back in 88 with eternal nightmare i was just getting going on the guitar i wasn't very good and uh, trying to learn some of the riffs and then in 91 when torture tactics came out there was a little store where i where i grew up and they could get all this obscure stuff and i got torture tactics on tape and i remember sitting down with the song with my guitar trying to transcribe and i said yeah it's not happening yeah this man is a legend he's from the band violence you also know him from his stint in the band machine head the one and only Mr. Phil Demo. Phil, it's an honor. What's up, man? That's quite the introduction. Yeah, well, it's it's from <laughs> the heart. So I want everyone to know Phil uh, has been very generous with his time, probably more generous with with his time than he really has because he's one of the busiest people I'm aware of with Oof. interviews. So I set it out as a personal challenge to try and ask Phil at the very least questions that either he hasn't been asked very often or hasn't been asked at all. You guys let me know how I do in the comment section below. So first off, Bill, let's just start off, just talk about the guitar. Talk about getting your first guitar, learning to play. What was that like? Uh, my first guitar, you know, my first real love for music came from um, my next door neighbor was actually my cousin, my cousin Ron. And he was three or four years older, so he was mid 70s he's into Aerosmith he's into Ted Nugent he's into Foghat he's into all these hard rock bands and uh, he had Kiss Alive on record and I went whoa what is this you know and so Kiss was the band that made me want to perform like we put on uh, these rock concerts we play along with the record we put the record on and put on the makeup and our little cardboard guitars and smoke bombs taped to the guitars you know and uh, I started off maybe wanting to play the drums and then uh, there's just too many parts. There's just too much going on. So uh, moved to guitar. And Angus Young was probably the guy that made me realize how much you can emote through your guitar. And uh, picking up with some ACDC stuff, um, there was a, a local department store called Jimco. And it was like a membership only uh, department store. You had to have a card to get in. And so if my parents weren't going, then I'd piggyback on somebody else's family just kind of walk in with their family you know yeah just with them you know and yeah they had a music section and hanging on the walls they had guitars you know so and and there was a uh it's like a les paul copy or something it was it didn't even have a make on it i didn't i couldn't even tell you who made it there was just no no words on it but it was 42 dollars and uh asked my parents and they said well, if you save up for half, then we'll match you, you know, and I had a bike route at the time or a paper route that I delivered on my bikes, you know, and so that was my first guitar and uh, learned some 
you know, some ACDC stuff, a little bit of Black Sabbath, some of the easier stuff, you know, you really got me. And yeah. Did you, uh, did you take lessons, Phil? I ended up taking some lessons for a bit. And uh, all I ended up as I progressed was just wanting to learn Judas Priest and Iron Maiden songs. So my teachers were like, look, you know, <laughs> actually one of my earlier teachers, I think I was in high school by this time. So it was probably three or four years into playing was uh, his name was his name was Ryan Rosowitz, but he's now Ryan Roxy, who's the guitar player for Alice Cooper. Oh, OK. And, uh, so as I, I I know Nita and and, uh, and her boyfriend, Josh. And so Nita's playing with them and I'm going to meet them. And then Ryan was there. I'm like, oh, holy crap. You're my guitar teacher from back in high school. So, yeah, it's pretty cool. Did you have to do like the Mel Bay, Hal Leonard, like reading notation stuff in those old uh, books? No, not really. I mean, there was some sort of uh, some tabs, tablature that Ryan taught me how to kind of read. And there was a local guy, Steve McKnight, who actually, if you're old, you are old. So you might remember the band. <laughs> you might remember the band Cry Wolf back in the day, kind of a hair. I, I remember the name, yes. So he, Steve McKnight <laughs> played in, uh, let me turn my mail off here, played in a band called Cry Wolf. And uh, so he's the local, just ridiculous shredder guy, too. I still see him around. And uh, sorry, quitting my mail here. Yeah, no problem. And uh, so I two really good teachers, but that's as I'm getting into. Um, we were playing covers. I, I my, me and my buddies had a band called On Parole. Um, and we would play Maiden Priest and Def Leppard and, you know, those types of bands. And I was getting into, I was writing music and writing lyrics, you know, writing songs when I was 15 years old. So, you know, and they're stupid lyrics and everything seemed to be about kind of like, how would be thy name? Everything was about going to the gallows pole, you know, or somebody about yeah. to get hanged. And, but these guys actually uh, are in my cover band right now called the Merkins. So we, we just play twice a year and it's just all silly covers, you know, Bon Jovi, same old stuff we were playing back in the day. Okay. But all my high school buddies here from Dublin High, we all still get together. It's a big community thing and play at our bar down. And so it's, uh, yeah, those are my, my humble beginnings. So when you were in your formative years, you know, sometimes we have times in the guitar where we progress more than others, but when you were really making progress, you're sitting down at night. What would a typical practice session for you have looked like back then? I mean, I was more into learning songs early. You know, it was, you know, I learned that first pentatonic box. And, you know, that was kind of what I stuck with and learned, you know, learned some Randy licks here and there. But it was it was more Angus and more of the, uh, you know, the Kill Mall came out. So we're learning Kirk's or Dave Mustaine's leads, you know, and um it was mostly learning how to play songs i wanted to learn how songs were structured and and chord shapes and different voicings and stuff like that i wanted to learn how you know you get into different tunings and um i think very early i found out that you know sabotage had a record called sirens oh yeah and they were you know i'm all ah this sounds low you know so i learned about drop tuning and and down tuning and i had a a floyd rose on one of my earlier guitars and so it's like Oh, you find out about having, you just can't tune it down. You have to adjust everything. And so, uh, you know, bands like, you know, Kiss were half step down. So you're learning songs and you're learning about all these different tunings and stuff. So I think I was more interested in not really shredding, 
but into songs and you know different chord changes you know maiden was a big band that that used a lot of the, the fifth harmony you know yeah. so i learned into and so after that everything that i was writing i, I was writing you know using the fifth harmonies on everything too so. yeah oh yeah no absolutely um so at that time i know you're in death penalty and and, and around the violence when violence started what was it like, like trying to get the crunch back in 84, 85? You know, that's a, you know, a discussion I had with Rick Hunol. How did you go about that? Like, what was the way to go to get that crunch back then? Man, there was, uh, I was playing through high watts in high school. Um, my buddy had, I remember on the first violence demo, my buddy had, uh, his name is Bill Xavier. He actually owns BC Rich right now. And, uh, but he was like this ripping, you know, dude worked at the local, music store so he had all the ends with all the gear and he was a big george lynch fan and uh, he had a randall head so randall was like oh what's steve martini using what's lynch using these days you know to get that good tone so we were in that sense but there was a marshall jmp tube amp that was was pretty hot that we were all kind of looking for at that time too i think as in the early 90s this guy bill worked at uh, the local music store and uh, the new the 5150 was coming out. So he's like, hey, you got to check the new Eddie head as it's coming out too. So I got the 5150 pretty early on. And yeah, it's a classic. That was, yeah, that was looking for super high gain, you know, and that was, that was the one. Yeah. Uh, it was kind of funny when I was talking with Rick Hino, he said in the early access gigs that like, and jams that they didn't even have noise gates. Yeah. No, it took a while. If you, you know, you were, you were making some money if you had a noise gate, you know, we yeah. all had a low boss, super overdrive pedal and, yeah. you know, tube screener was around at that time, but you know, there was no noise gates. There was lots of squeaking and lots of choking on the volume. Oh my God. Yeah. Well, when did you get your first noise gate? Man, it was probably, I don't know if I had them during the violence days, maybe in my torque days, the mid nineties, Probably the mid nineties. Okay. Yeah, maybe the mid nineties. I went. I got good at, at you know the volume choke. Oh man, it's it's you know one thing when you have a as soon as you say fifty one fifty, I always think noise gate. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh yeah. Um, um, I wanted to ask you too. Uh, I was watching an old violence bootleg on YouTube. You guys were playing in Houston back in eighty eight, and I was just watching how oh, crazy. Houston. Yeah, <laughs> Houston. Uh, shout out to my good friend Rusty Cooley. Um, so yeah. uh, it was just amazing watching. You know, like you know, we're we're in the same age bracket, and I, you know, like I go to the gym, I try and, but you know, I was watching that show, and I'm going, does Phil watch those old shows and go, how the hell did I do that? The way you guys were moving around, and sometimes I'll I'll go down the YouTube, you know, the black hole, and and uh, and watch some old stuff or if i'm looking for you know i, I do a lot of filling in for bands so I, I get caught up on the youtube watching live footage of like you know the lamb of god stuff i try to watch what you know what they do live and how they do some live stuff and same with the overkill and um so you find those old ones and i think i know the show you're talking about it was in houston oh, it's crazy with uh, uh we were on tour testament at the time on the new order tour in 88 and then overkill was on tour nuclear assault and we came together in texas and we kind of mixed up and did this big, you know, join the tours together and did four, three shows, which was really cool. That Houston show was really fucking good. Yeah. 
And uh, yeah, we were going nuts on stage, man. We had a lot to prove. We, was, we were on our first tour. Oh, it's crazy. Playing, we're playing with nuclear assault and overkill, and you know, trying to trying to show these guys that with the half stacks and no no room on stage that we could still oh man still bring it. So, um, when you guys were on tour with Testament, did you learn anything from the band, or did Alex and Eric show you guys anything? Um, I don't really know if they showed us anything. I mean, Alex was always open to to showing things when asked, but we were, there were a lot of egos back in the day. So there was a lot of, you know, uh, we did learn a lot from them on that tour on how to tour. It was their first tour. I think that they were on a bus and we were following in a van, you know, with all our stuff. We had two benches, there were seven people. And so we had all our gear and all our luggage. The drums were on the roof yeah, and we're oh, following man. them around the country. And, and we, you know, we aspired to be what they were. So they were kind of the, we saw them as a reachable goal as like, Hey, they're doing it. You know, that's, this is what they they were kind of setting the bar for yeah. a realistic goal for us. So your best memories of touring with them? With Testament? Yeah. Uh, that tour was amazing, man. The new, the new order had just come out. They're blowing up. They were really worried about headlining. Voivod was supposed to be on the tour and they canceled because Piggy was sick. Yeah. And so we, we supported a lot of it. Then they brought Sanctuary in to be the support. And uh man, every show was just great. It was awesome to to watch them blow up and for us to have an opportunity to be, you know, a part of that. We were following the uh the Aerosmith and Skid Row tour. No, wait, it was Aerosmith and Guns N' Roses. Oh wow. Because this was this was appetite, you know. So yeah. we're following Aerosmith with Guns N' Roses on Appetite, following that tour within days. Sometimes we're playing the same city. And uh, so it was just a, a crazy time. And wow. we're really fortunate to be a part of that. I hate to say that, but the good old days. But anyway, moving on. <laughs> yeah, whatever. Yeah. Um, the days, you know, we, we got to experience them. So I've, you know, make the most of what, what we got. I, I know when you guys toured with Voivod, it was a bit of a rougher tour than uh, with Testament. But do you have any good, what are your best memories of that tour? That was a winter tour and we were playing the same clubs in November, December that we had just played in July and August. So here we are four months later playing the same markets, same clubs and, you know, to 30%, half of the crowd, you know, so it was uh, a kind of a weird matchup. Us and Voivod, people were there to see them, you know, they didn't want to sit through a thrash band and, uh, but they're great dudes. Um, you know, some of the shows are really cool. It's cool playing Montreal, their hometown. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm only a few, I'm in Quebec, so I'm a few hours from there. Yeah. Yeah. So the, the, uh, the Cro-Mags were on a couple of shows that we did there. Yeah. Our bass player re-dislocated his knee while walking around in the snow. Mm -hmm. So I think the crowd played bass or something. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, it was, uh, it was, it was cold. We at least had a trailer this time. Yeah. Um, we had a sound man, so we were kind of stepping up a little bit. We had a little more freedom and kind of feeling that, but the shows just weren't weren't as good, and no. we we weren't as big as we thought we were. Yeah. Well, um, if I can show you outside, it's 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 a nice snowy day and cold up here, Phil. I got the humidifier cranking to have moisture. Oh man, for the guitars. Yeah. Oh yeah, it's it's pretty All cold right. here today. Um, so when you play in a two, you know, I try and explain this to students and musicians. When you play in a heavy band where you're both using a lot of gain. And there's two guitars. Uh, you know, I remember one time I was jamming with a band many years ago, and the other guitar player had his mids cranked. I went over and said, dude, no. And we had to kind yeah. of work the shape 
Our EQ, uh, you and Rob had to go through that process to get the best combination of EQing for your rhythm tones on stage? Uh, for violence? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. We had, um, we got a little bit of money, so we were able to go out and buy, uh, Rob had the the white Marshall, I think it was the 25th anniversary head. I had the, the silver Jubilee head. Um, and so we, you know, I was messing around with a Furman uh, EQ for a minute and, um, yeah, we were, you know, we were always kind of messing with tone. He was, he was more nerdy about it than I was. Yeah. Um, and he always looking for tone, you know, still, still, still is a guy's a, a real gearhead and really has yeah. an ear for, ear for tone in that sense. And, uh, so yeah, I mean, we, we wanted to have a sound, but we wanted to sound good. Yeah. You know, we wanted the, the game, but we wanted the crunch. Everybody wanted to kill them all at that point or ride the lightning and, yeah. you know, was after that Metallica and Exodus on Bonded had great tone, you know. No, absolutely. Um, how do you think you grew as a guitar player during that time? You know, getting Rob in the band really pushed me as a player. Uh, he did a solo like his first show, so he's you know a phenomenal player, man. He's great, oh, great yeah. guitar player. Awesome phrasing, and you know, it's so he pushed me a lot as a player and as a writer because uh he came in the band and um he brought uh a song he brought in torture tactics which what would be torture tactics he actually wrote that song for forbidden and it was called court jester i think and they were they actually were joking like hey that sounds this is before he quit you know they were joking like eh, that sounds like a violence tune you know so he brought the beginning part of it over and then i wrote uh, a bunch of the middle sections and some of the end so it's our first collaboration and yeah. uh, so that was really cool in that sense that we you know we hit it off that way and uh yeah as we grew you know he's a guitar head always playing guitar always looking for new things uh playing wise i remember when uh we heard the alice in chains record on we were on a tour with defiance as our first bus tour and then we found out that they down tuned, you know, they drop tuned. So learning that drop tuning was a was a new thing that you know we actually recorded um, two two songs on the third Violence record. Yeah, it drop tuning, killing my words. Da, 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 da. Yeah. there's so much riffing going on a lot of it, but these were kind of slower down. And this song that didn't make it on the record called "All Good Dies," uh, we're we're drop tuned. And so that was kind of an eye opener. But I remember us hearing, you know, uh, you know, going, oh, that's that's how they do that. The drop tuning. Yeah. And just as a passing note about Machine Head, like, because one thing about Machine Head, the tuning was very different, like, you know, up 40 cents and uh, with yeah. the drop tunings and everything. So do you think that was probably a precursor to that maybe for Rob? Yeah, maybe. Like I said, he's always looking for nerding out on 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 different things and how does how does this and you know i think the 40 cents thing came about because maybe the the bass because of adam because the bass he wanted the strings a little bit tighter or uh it's just kind of a you know happy accident thing or just something that just stuck you know i think that rob likes having things you know being this is this is my trip and this is what i this is you know so having his own signature thing and and I think that's one of them. I mean, lots of bands do it. I mean, Van Halen, 
I think Eddie just tuned his guitar by just taking a chord and whatever, you know, this is where I'm at. And, uh, Pantera and, you know, some other bands have, have done a, a weird quarter tuning, but. You know, my, my first memory of drop tuning is the thing that should not be for Master of Puppets back in yeah. 85. I was, I remember all my friends were listening to it going, what? That seemed like the heaviest thing. So good, right? Oh, no. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, well, so the drop tuning thing, it's funny that, you know, a lot of people claim to have invented the drop tuning and um, that looking at it, I, I golf with Buzz from the Melvins. Okay, yeah. And I'm all, dude, where did you, you know, he's all, well, yeah, I learned that from some blues guy. Then I showed it to like Chris Cornell or to Kim or somebody like that. And then that's how I got to Allison Chains back in the late, you know, in the late 80s. Yeah. And so he's been dropped to me forever. And then I talked to Bobby Gustafson, who was in violence. And uh, he's, oh, yeah, the, uh, what is the song on Years of Decay? The fucking Skull Crusher is fucking, that's dropped to, you know, that's like, drop A? Or something ridiculous. So I mean, Bobby Gustafson was drop tuning back in '89. An overkill, yeah, yeah. So uh, people drop tuning for a long time. So, um, do you remember when grunge came in? Like when you were in Violence and grunge came in? Do you remember like first time you know you heard yeah. Nirvana? Or, what was your what was your initial reaction to that? I'll, I'll be honest, I hated it. I you know. I think that we were at a foundations forum, which is this convention in LA for like rock and metal that, uh, you know, we're hearing all about Pearl Jam and how they're the new thing. And, um, and I remember hearing even flow, which I liked, and I still like, that's one of my, you know, but a lot of it, you know, like the hits from Nirvana, but never really, you know, I can appreciate the songwriting of it because the songwriting is pretty amazing, but it was, you know, Austin Chains, is one of my favorite bands, you know, and if they're, they're grunge, they, I think that they're a rock band, I guess they're grungy or whatever, but they're the band that I gravitate towards from that era. Yeah, a me lot. Too. And I think they sound, they sound different. I was, I like some of the hits from Soundgarden, some songs from Soundgarden and, yeah. you know, I really, I like Audio Slave a lot, but you know, back then it was, you know, <laughs> who would have known that it was going to just knock, you know the metal world on its ear and just kind of take over so i mean i embraced it as as music you know i don't yeah. really get into the subgenres and this and that and this and that I, you know as music there there were songs that i liked about it just like yeah. there was metal songs that i liked and didn't like too you know uh for me i i could see a warning sign with that because every every month so early 90s i'd religiously get guitar world guitar for the practicing musician guitar school uh guitar mm -hmm. player and I went from reading about, you know, Metallica, Megadeth, a few articles on Testament, Ingve Malmsteen, all that stuff, Steve Vai, then all of a sudden, like, it, it just became all grunge. I'm like, what, what, what's going on here? So my next question for you, it's kind of a weird one. Just bear with me for it. It's kind of two-pronged, but um, when you remember the last days of the first era of violence, like, uh, you, you know, you, had, you started having some members quitting, did you... Do you remember what it felt like? I, I know in documentary and the uh, Blood and Dirt documentary, you said you know like the, the venues were less and less people. Was there that weird energy going on? Like when were you kind of going? You know what? I think it, I think you know we I got to think about winding it down here. Do you remember when that moment was? Yeah, I think that we were headlining at the Stone, a place that we always sell out, and there was a band called Mountain Pig opening for us, and. 
I remember the band, their band, sitting in the front row as we're sound checking. And I caught one of them like going to his buddy, just going. <laughs> oh, geez. Like, oh, you know, just like, I'm all, wow. We're just like, is that what we are now? We're just like the, the, uh, sat, just a, just a satire of what used to be. And we're still bringing it out, you know? So it's, we used to be the cool thing. And that was, that was a, a really defining moment with me. And, you know, I, I regret dragging out violence as long as we did in the uh, the early nineties. You know, it took Sean quitting to yeah. fuck. We can't do this anymore. But uh, did you did you have a period where you felt you were just doing it out of obligation or going through the motions before he quit? Or I think it worked. Like we were trying try. We talk about drop tuning. You know, Rob was doing Machine Head at that time, and they drop tune, and I was like. Fuck. You know, that sounds awesome. And we had done it on a couple of violence records, but it's like, you know, the three songs, the three last songs we wrote with, uh, with Sean and the band were drop tuned and more groovy. And I don't know if you've heard them. Uh, anyways, we've, they're, they're on YouTube. You can get them, but they were on the torque record because Sean just quit. So I just re-recorded the vocals on that. Yep. So, um, yeah. So, I mean, we were trying to change with the times and it was, you know, it, it, looking back i guess it was holding on to like you still have that glory and you're still somebody type deal and yeah. and then uh yeah then you're just then you're just not and it was okay you know i was i had just gotten married i was snowboarding i was playing golf i was playing you know basketball three times a week and i had things to keep me busy i just joined the carpenters union you know so i was making good money and mm-hmm. you know i had all bought a house and you know i had all these crazy cool things happening so i was able to let it go yeah so but keep that keeping that thought and that feeling when things were kind of at the end thinking of that but now looking at how loved violence is like like the the the, how much does it ever shock you if you think back to then you look now about how how many people in the world love the band yeah it's pretty awesome you know i did the tour with them overseas in europe and going through all those those European countries and seeing, you know, the love that the band has over there. And they're in, uh, they're in Australia, I think right now. And they just went through Vietnam and, and Bangkok and stuff. So it's, it's really cool to see that the love for the band, I think that, you know, maybe like any band, but I think a band like violence, especially would have benefited from the, uh, the luxury of the internet back in the day. You yeah. Know, so yeah. It's almost really overwhelming now. Like how many people like love the band, you know? Yeah. Uh, um, I always thought uh, I wanted to talk about Jackson guitars for a few minutes because from my any picture, video, anything I've ever seen you and you're always holding a Jackson guitar. Mm-hmm. And we were as soon as we picked up. <laughs> I, I, you know, if, if someday you you kind of, uh, I don't want to use the word retire, uh, but from music, if you ever uh, uh, slow it down. Yeah. I always, I always had a great business idea for you. You could have like a Jackson V museum. <laughs> There you go. Um, how what's the Jackson, idea? Ed, what's that? What's your idea? The idea would be if if you had like a Jackson V museum. How, oh, how many Jackson V's do you have? Jackson V's? I don't know. I don't know. I know that the uh, the count, my guitar count, is about. It's, I think it's resting just under a hundred right now. So I've got a storage unit with some. I don't because I rotate. I donate guitars. I. Uh, 
I give guitars to buddies. Uh, so a number uh, I'm not too sure of. And I've got guitars around the world kind of, um, man, I don't know, these? I've got a lot of these. Yeah. Probably 50. Just think 50. about that, a Jackson V Museum. Yeah, right. Charge admission and people come in, they look at it. <laughs> little write up with you, a picture of you playing this guitar at such and such a gig. I always yeah. thought, man, I got to tell them someday that'd be a great business for them. I don't think anybody really cares, man. Uh, I do. <laughs> um, right, I'll just send you pictures. Okay. That's okay. That's a good uh, compromise there. But uh, tell me about your relationship with Jackson when it started. Because I remember in the late 80s and Guitar Magazine seeing your name and some of the Jackson ads. Yep. Yeah. I, uh, I got my first in the mid eighties. Uh, our first guitar player, Troy Fua had, uh, <laughs> he, um, he had one that he acquired by a, probably a pot deal gone wrong or something like that. Somebody owed him for a dime bag and he's, ah, I got your guitar until, you know, and, and so he knew that I loved Randy and, and, uh, offered me a trade. He's, you know, this is my guitar now. And so I gave him like a hundred bucks and like the Charvel kit guitar I had. Yeah. And, uh, and so I had that guitar for a while. It's on the back of eternal nightmare or on the sleeve of eternal nightmare. I'm playing it. It's a shark fin. Uh, <laughs> so funny story about that guitar. I don't know if you've heard this before, but we were playing at the Omni. It's a sold out show. Uh, halfway through the set the sound the monitor guy comes over and gets me he's like hey man i, I hate to do this to you but you got to come with me and so he pulls me over backstage door opens and there's cops there and then the dude whose guitar it is <laughs> is there with his girlfriend <laughs> with his girlfriend and his mom and he's just going yep that's my guitar you know so i said oh fuck you know and i knew it was his and and so he just wanted his guitar back, but they had me cuffed in the back of a car yeah. and violence is back to playing. And they're all, oh, Sean yeah. said something like, I hope Sean, Phil don't get butt fucked in jail or something like that. Oh, we're playing anyways. <laughs> my, dad, my dad's an ex-cop. So he comes out waving his badge, you know, and what's going on here? And yeah. they said, well, we're not going to charge him. So they let me go. I ran back in the club, stage dive, borrowed a guitar from the support act and finished the show. Wow. That's yeah, no, that's a hilarious story. So like, so your actual business relationship with Jackson, when did that start? Uh, that started before the second record. So probably about 89. Uh, I think James Pennemaker was the guy's name who was at Jackson. And uh, he sent me a couple guitars, a couple soloists. Uh, I gave one to Rob. Um, and I couldn't really play a Strat. You know, it's just, yeah. I can't play a strap body it just sat on me weird i don't even know what i did with that guitar um fuck what happened to that guitar it's not like i get rid of, you know i fuck, i don't know maybe it's in the museum uh, so, yeah yeah maybe <laughs> yeah right so i that's that's when it started i think that once the band kind of broke up we i just didn't pursue any ties with them and then uh joined machine head and reached back out and Brian McDonald, who was there, was a big violence fan. And uh, I don't think that he was really interested too much in the MH tie as much as he was with the, the violence ties. So, yeah. you know, car behind you, he's a big Philadelphia Phillies fan too. And, and so we had that affinity together. We loved the, you know, the team back in the seventies, we'd still talk about it, but the color, the official color of the guitar behind you is Philly red. Mm -hmm. 
So, so um, yeah, so the beginning of 2000, and we got to talking about, you know, he's trying to get me a signature, and nobody there really knew who I was, but he went to bat, and we came up, you know, I came up with the design. Yeah, we'll he talk more it. about we'll talk more about that. Phil, I got to ask you a question before I forget. It's yeah, no very important. Um, was opening for Alien Sex Fiend the worst gig you've ever done in your life? No. No, it wasn't. It was actually not a, a horrible gig for us. You know, it was a weird show, but I mean, there was people there that liked us. I've done a bunch <laughs> of shows where there was nobody really there or nobody really felt what we were doing. So, I mean, it was a, it was definitely one of the weirdest things that we had done. Yeah, I remember you were talking about that in the documentary and I was like going. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> dumb manager, man. Just a fucking idiot manager. Yeah, uh, but back to guitars. Have you ever used a tone knob in your life? <laughs> you know, you know, there was probably some recording that uh, when I was messing with some cleans or something a while ago, to where if we we you know we try putting the the toggle in the middle position using the middle position and then rolling the tone off of something came up with trying to find the the best tone in that sense, but yeah, oh man, I don't. No, none of my guitars have tone knobs on them. No, yeah, no, exactly. I, I hate them, and I hate middle pickups, too. Uh, yeah. Bridge and neck, man. That's like, um, I wanted to ask you, too, do you do your own setups on your Floyds and everything? I'll change my strings um, every once in a while, but I've got a local guy here who's yeah, who's real. I mean, he lives less than a, about a mile away from my house, so he's, like, on the way to the kid's school. So, I, hey, you know, drop C or – you know, E flat standard or whatever. Up forty cents. Yeah, yeah, no, not anymore. <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, I, I learned how uh, from a luthier how to do like setups on fixed bridges, but uh, most of my guitars have Floyd's on them, and I, I just don't want to go there. I yeah, don't trust myself. Lot. It's a lot, man. No, uh, I don't. Uh, so with the demolition uh, again, I love my guitar. I wanted to tell you too. I've always been a bolt-on neck guy. I okay. that. That so I, I like the lower end model. I, I love everything about it. Uh, sure. I'm going to be doing posting a review on it very soon. Um, well, tell uh, me why. Why? What? What is it about the bolt on? I don't. You know, I don't know. I'm not. I don't know a lot about guitars. So I, you know, all, most of my guitars from before. I, you know, the guitars I learned on the old like Ibanez uh, models and everything. They all had bolt on necks. The, the the neck through body guitars. I just I, I don't know what it is. Now to to be honest, it it is on my agenda to get. Uh, the higher end uh, demolition guitar to, to, to have one and to try it. And of course, like with the awesome pickups in there and everything, but I, I got to tell you, man, I love that guitar. I, I wow. absolutely love that guitar. So uh, um, uh, I definitely am going to get to a review this week for sure. But I, I you know, uh, sometimes I'll try and uh, I remember kind of getting into an argument on marketplace on Facebook with a guy in Montreal, he was selling his. And then when I was going through Montreal. He, at the last minute he said, no, no, I, I I was just like I was almost showed up at his house. I'm like, dude. Oh, dude. So, yeah. So uh, no, they're awesome guitars. And I'll, another thing I like too about the shape, I, I did have a shark fin, Jackson many years ago, um, mm -hmm. but to to play, I find the demolition it's more balanced, especially yeah. when you sit with it. The shark mm -hmm. fin is always a little bit of a, a an adjustment to it too. But uh, it's a great guitar. It's got attitude. I um I don't like guitars that look like they're a tree. Yeah. <laughs> or a piece of wood i like you know you know and again uh you know there's a few brands i like but you know jackson they really make awesome guitars so uh yeah i agree, I agree. but i definitely want to get my hands on the higher end model as well just 
you know, I'm sure I could probably adjust to the next three body with just sitting down with it for an hour or two, but I don't know. It was just always kind of a little weird for me with those, but I'm sure I can get the hang of it. You'll be fine. Yeah. Uh, I'm going to name a band. Just give me your quick thoughts on them. Okay. Okay. Exodus. Huh. You know, they're the reason why we're all here. You know, um, phenomenal guitar playing, phenomenal musicianship. You know, the Bay Area heroes, uh, Gary's the godfather for, you know, all us guitar players. And, uh, you know, Zet was in, me and Zet's brother, he played in our band when I was in high school. My, I was in 15, he was in On Parole. You know, we yeah. me and his brother got him to sing for us. I've known Zet for the longest time. And uh, it's great to see him still crushing it. Yeah, I, I love Zet's show on youtube i think it's, yeah, it's, it's awesome. great yeah, i i actually i reached out to zet and asked him to come on and he, he said no but he was gracious he sent me a really nice email back and said you know i've done a lot of interviews and, I, and he's like i i don't think i could be asked something that i haven't been asked a hundred times and i'm like i don't know man i don't mind digging and doing some work but uh he, he was super nice super gracious and you never know down the road as well but um yeah for sure yeah he's awesome uh, He's awesome with fans and awesome with press and super cordial and cares about all of that. Oh, absolutely. And he like oh, and he likes the Calgary Flames, which I find yeah. slightly uh, interesting being a Canadian guy. But so we'll get to the hockey in a minute. All but, right. Um, Testament. Testament. Fuck, man. You know, same amazing musicianship and, you know, knowing the guys as well as I have, um, it's is there a bad testament record you know is there a record where you just have they put out a bad record you know it's yeah. you know they i i love eric's riffs i love you know he's hell of, hell of a lead player too yeah you know, alex is alex is you know one of the best you know guitar players that i've seen and uh you know who's playing drums for them? Lombardo's in the band, but they got Hoagland, and you know yeah. they got they they plug and play the most phenomenal drummers of all. You know, so and Stevie yeah. D's a boy. You know, I love I love Testament. Yeah. Um, were you at that gig? Uh, so when Alex left the band in '92, so mm -hmm. to my understanding, uh, they had Glenn Alvalai, and they were coming around again, and they wanted to do like have a proper send off for Alex, and and they played a local show. But Louie quit like that day. Were you at that gig? Because I think they were calling Perry in or somebody to try and help I was at that up. gig. You know what? I was at that gig because Perry played. Perry played. Yeah. What and are your memories of that? I remember sitting in the bar in the at the bar watching, and it was, I think it was one of Glenn's first shows. It might have been his first show at the Warfield. And uh and <laughs> here's here's to show you what our relationship was back then. Me and Dean were counting how many times he fucked up in the back. That's oh, why. Yeah, that's too. <laughs> we were happy for him. We, you know, Perry filled in for Exodus, and and uh, you, to hear Perry talk about, it, he's like, "Fuck!" He just said yes. He's all he, he didn't know any of that shit. He's just like he just said yes to do it, and I'll figure it out type deals. So, well, a lot of people, I don't think a lot of people realize that. I think Glenn was playing, but Alex was playing too. They wanted to do a send off for him. Hmm, I don't remember that. Yeah, so I got it from his book. But anyway, um, okay. Death Angel. Death Angel, oh, they've been around since the beginning. My beginnings of going to the East Bay shows and uh, watching Andy when he was 15 years old playing, and um, 
remember when Mark first started singing for them, um, they were always like our competition. And we had, yeah. we had, we had beef with them back in the day. And I always respected their, their musicianship as well, you know? And I think Rob's a phenomenal guitar player. And, oh, yeah. and uh, so that, but there was, you know, 89 was the height of, you know, we're coming into our set, our pressings coming out, they're doing act three, yeah. you know, and, and twisted into forms coming out. There was a big, you know, the, I guess we're the third, we were the third wave, maybe not really the second wave or whatever we were, but that, that bunch of bands were really, you know, yeah, cocky as fuck. And, you know, Death Angel, you know, always, I always admire the musicianship. Songwriting was fucking great, you know, but they were our, they were in the way, you know. Yeah. <laughs> what was I feel totally different now, you know, as, as we've gone oh, yeah. through the nineties and as you know, we've grown to be adults, you know, totally feel different now. And, and you know, uh, what, what's really interesting is you and Rob are both Jackson guys. I've never seen him without that warrior guitar. Yeah. He's been playing just as long as I have. Yeah, no, for Probably sure. Longer, maybe, maybe, maybe about the same. Okay. Um, yeah. Forbidden. Here we go. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's such a weird A weird relationship with that man you know we we would practice in fremont and uh perry knew the guys from annihilation who had this guy pat had this he had their jam spot and it was awesome man he it was the party party joint you know forbidden practice in a storage place around the corner we'd set up in front of annihilation and play it was a party every weekend and um so we we be, we were peers in the beginning and as we were having trouble with troy you know, we asked Rob to join and we weren't looking for a guitar player. We just wanted Rob in the band. And um, I think he felt the same way. And so that started, you know, we were both starting. We, I think we had, had been playing in clubs a little bit longer than them. We were a little bit older, uh, but that started, you know, this big competition. They got De Debbie Abono to start managing them. Yeah. And then, we got then we got Debbie to manage us. And it was like, who's getting the, Who's getting the record deal? Who's getting the cover? Who's getting the, you know, who's getting yeah. that? So it was a, it was, plus with the personalities, you know, we, we were super cocky and talk shit and, you know, Craig was super mouthy and, you know, so it was a, it was a big, a big thing that it carried on for a long time. You know, I did this barrier in a thrashional show with, and Craig invited me to be part of it over when I was over there with Lamb of God. And I had to, uh, I had to pull him aside before we went on stage and really, you know, let a lot of shit go that I'd still be still kind of carrying maybe, you know, not so much from back then, but just personal shit. And yeah. I needed to make a point with him to go, look, I got to, whether you're not. And he's like, Fuck, I don't have anything. I'm, you know, and just, but I had to just let him know that, Hey, I'm carrying this and I'm, I'm letting it go. Now I need to let this go. It's fucking dumb, you know, but before I go on stage with you and throw down, you know, I need to really do it. I need to, you know, I need to, we need to be bros. If we're going to, I can't go up there and fake it. So yeah. it was a really, that was a really cool moment, you know, and we've, I think that that maybe it, it turned a light on with him. Like maybe what was going on with me, yeah. But ever since then, it's been like a, a different dynamic to 
you know, I've had him come jam with the, the cover band and, you know, I, our relationship has really changed since that. So I'm That's really good though. I've done that. Yeah. It's, it felt, you know, it's, it feels good. A little lighter on the shoulders. Yeah, for sure. Another for Bay sure. Area, another Bay Area band I'm going to ask about is Vicious Rumors. Uh, you know, I don't really have a lot of, I've known the guys, known Jeff for a long time. Um, they were more, I don't know, they were like a power metal band. They were true metal, I did, you know, all the subgenres. I get, they were, they weren't really, they were kind of a tweener band. They were older. They'd been around for a long time. So yeah. they had been through all the stages of the Bay Area metal scene, you know, and yeah. better than that. Great players. Jeff was awesome. Mark McGee was fucking killer. Oh, yeah. You know, I love the lineup when they had uh, Carl Albert singing for them. And, um, so it's you know talented band. I'm just not really familiar. I think Ira played with them too. Ira, okay. Ira Black is in violence. So you know not a lot of not a lot of known information there with me. You know, uh, so where I grew up, uh, I grew up in Ottawa. It's the capital city, of Canada, home of the Ottawa Senators. Uh, I I'm actually I, I know John Ricci quite well. Oh, um, I love John Ricci. I yeah, don't know. I, I just love that lineup. I'll say hi to him for you. I talk to him every other week. I sometimes I'll pop into his work. Uh, I've got his, you know, we text and email and stuff, and I've known him for years. He was just Tom. Tom I'm a huge fan, man. I will definitely do that. Um, but to us, meaning not John, but to us, the younger crowd that were really into thrash and learning our instruments, like the Bay Area was the center of the universe. It, it just seemed like a million miles away. So, like to us, as peons, we would look at you guys and we would like try and get every information in the magazines or the metal magazines or, you know, Canada had a, a, a metal show on much music called the, the Pepsi power hour. And then it became the Pepsi. Like oh, the, the first time world on a world in a world came on. I was just like, I, I, I remember running to the VCR to try and tape it so fast. Like it was, oh, uh, wow. <laughs> so I think it might be kind of weird for you guys at times because you grew up in the Bay area. Everything was, it's just, you were there, but to us, it's like, Oh my God. Oh my God. Like, <laughs> The Bay Area. And so, you know, I had great parents. I loved my parents. Uh, but, you know, I, I, you know, I do struggle with the fact that they didn't, you know, live in the Bay Area. <laughs> Move so. me there. We were really, we were really fortunate to be able to witness all that happening. And I was maybe a little bit late considering my age and what was happening at the time. I didn't see Exodus until the record release party at the Kabuki in 1985. I didn't see Metallica until, uh, I remember I saw him at the Keystone Berkeley, but it was Kill 'Em All had been out, and um, they were playing Fight Fire with Fire for the very first time. So a little <laughs> bit late to to seeing some of that. My buddy Dave Colbrouse was a he was into Exodus and he had the demos, you know, and he had. But uh, there was this band called Lost Rocket. Oh yeah, that, that he turned me on to, and uh, our hometown boy Willie Langan, he was in, he's from Dublin, from my hometown. He had joined. And I really loved before the record came out, they, you know, um, before City's Gonna Burn, right around that era was when I loved that Phil Kettner and Aaron Jell and the guitar players were just fucking amazing. Oh, yeah. So uh, that was the band that I was more into. And then I got into Exodus and then I got into, you know, yeah. everybody loved Metallica, but Laws was my band. And, and Laws, uh, you know, they just, just couldn't seem to connect to make it to that next level, eh? Like, uh, yeah. I, yeah, I don't know. They were a tweener. What... They were a tweener. They weren't really a thrash band, or they were weren't really. Yeah. I, 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 I've heard things from bad album covers to bad management might have been issues. 
Don't know him, wasn't there? Yeah, yeah, I don't know. I don't know. I love them. So I know you've done a couple of projects with Mike Portnoy. So um, I was just curious as to your take on like progressive metal, progressive stuff. Like what, what do you, what's your take on bands like Dream Theater and Symphony X? Huh. You know, I don't listen to them that much. I, you know, I have an appreciation for it, obviously. But, you know, yeah, me and Mike, uh, we do, you know, mostly metal or rock stuff. We did the BPMD record together. We do the Metal Allegiance stuff together. Um, me and Russell from Symphony X have done a you know a couple covers or a cover or something like that. And um, yeah, I don't. It's it's out of my realm. I don't. You know, I've got three kids. Got four kids, but I got three that I'm taking care of here. The other one's grown and living in Hawaii and got four grandkids. But you know, oh, wow. so that's I don't have time for you know yeah twelve songs and you know. So it's, yeah, it's kind of a little bit too much for me. Um, when did you get into hockey? Now, being a Canadian boy, I got to ask you, was Dave Schultz the greatest enforcer of all time? <laughs> he was, actually. But, you know, it was weird being from California and loving the idea of the sport. We didn't have that much here. We had the Seals, but I had heard I'm a big Raider fan, so it was all about the, you know, the Raiders just, you know, being the bad boys of the league. And then I hear about these broad street bullies across the country, you know, and I'm following in, in California, you could only follow hockey in the paper in the mid seventies. And so you're seeing that they're winning championships and they're, you know, they're brawling and they're blah, blah, blah. And I said, fuck, these guys sound amazing, you know, losing teeth and Schultz and McLeish and, you know, Reggie Leach and Bobby Clark and, and Bernie. Yeah. And uh, so, you know, I hopped on that bandwagon, not even, I didn't even know their first names, yeah. you know, because you just see in the box score, you're just seeing Clark, you know, Leach, McLeish, you know, I don't even know their first names for until like 79 when ESPN starts, they're bringing hockey in. And so it's like, Oh, you get to see these players and you get to see yeah. the game. And yeah, just been flyers since the mid seventies, man. No, that's cool. Because like in Canada, we were on skates by the age of three. But I got to tell you a quick funny story. Do you remember that that those tape series called Hard and Heavy? You guys were oh, yeah. on them. Do you remember? So oh, yeah, it's wearing the Flyers jersey. Yeah. So so a couple of quick things about that because uh, you know you know I I won't mention which bands we watched and which ones we fast forward through. But violence comes on. We're like you know you guys were funny and everything. And then there was something about you saying like you distributed three thousand tapes by yourself, and we're kind of like, how would he distribute three thousand tapes by himself? Mail. Okay. Well, there, well, that's a lot of work. I would have been like, guys, can you kind of, <laughs> but um, so I remember that, but I also remember like, cause you guys were live somewhere in San Francisco and you're playing calling the corner and you're wearing a Philadelphia Jersey and, I, and we're, we're all hockey guys. We're looking at you going, you're wearing a Philadelphia. <laughs> so a couple of what? Canadian teenage boys are going like, he's wearing a Philadelphia Flyers Jersey. That's so cool. No, that's cool that you're into that, man. No, it's uh, of course, it's, you know, hockey's big up here, and it's it's really have uh, has progressed down in the states as well. Do you ever get mm -hmm. out to see the San? Ho uh, do you ever go see San Jose Sharks or? I go once a year when the Flyers come to town. Yeah, no, that's <laughs> cool, man. But uh, I fortunate enough to play. We played the Wells Fargo in, with Metallica in 2009, and uh, I, one of the security guards, because I wore a Bernie Perrant. Perrant Bernie, Bernie Perrant jersey on st on stage that night, yeah. and the security guy was, "Ah, boy, you know, he's all, you know, they're all here, right?" And I said, 
who's all here and they're all they're all up in the suite all the flowers were there yeah I'll get me up there i'll give you a shirt for your kid yeah. so I went up, and that was 2009 so it's it's mike richards it's jeff carter it's riley cote it's uh chemo team and it's yeah. that team and hung out with them and you know it was it was a good it was a good time hockey dudes are the most real you know most real dudes it was a really good time are you uh were you a fan of the eric lindros area of the flyers yeah i you know not so much a lindros fan but i mean yeah. that was that was yeah that was the era of all eras that i'm a fan of you know they yeah swept by detroit that you know the one time they made it and yeah it just you know it was just way too much we gave we gave Quebec everything, and they took it to Colorado and won a bunch of rings. You know. Yeah, uh, you know, uh, Lindros was a big deal. Yeah, Lindros was a big deal in the juniors coming up in Canada. He was in the news all the time. But, uh, well, six five, two hundred and forty something pounds, right? You know, Boy. probably not a good guy to run into at full speed. But uh, the hit that Scott Stevens laid on him, man. I know, man. Oh man, that was just not. Nah, he's he's uh, affected a number of careers, but. Um, but yeah. yeah, no, that's really cool about the the Philadelphia Flyers, and there's some Fox great documentaries out there about the Broad Street Bullies. Right, right, right. I've seen yeah. I seen the one that was on HBO, which was really good. And Rob Zombie was going to do a movie. He was going to do a movie, and uh, on the mayhem that we did, I have Flyers. I had a Flyers patch on my uh, my battle vest. I said, "But he's all, can you skate? I'll put you in the movie." You know. <laughs> yeah. No, that's hilarious. Um. Phil, I wanted to talk to you about gear now, okay? Um, so I know back uh, with Machine Head, I know with the freight of trying to get equipment over across the sea and, and uh, you know, to different continents and stuff, it costs a lot of money. I know there's a period where you guys got into the Axe Effects. So if you have any, like, uh, business endorsements or anything, just give me a heads up and I can take it out of the interview. Or, but uh, I, I know for my, my day playing, no matter what style I was playing, you know, you're on stage, you know, a good amp, good tube amp, some good guitars, your fingers and a few good pedals. You're playing, you know, in different genres. Yeah, sometimes you're playing to drunk people. They're spilling beer all over your floor pedals. You're stepping on adapters. So when yeah. I see guy, when I see guys that get these really, really expensive, like floor units, or I'm just like, I had my tinkering phase where I had my, my rock mount stuff in the late nineties, all racked together and controlled by MIDI, but I'm not a tinker. Uh, uh, you know, and I, I saw a, a few flow charts of your setups uh, and, and machine head or whatever, but it was good, but it was still relatively practical. It wasn't like, like, did you like programming those things? Like, do you like sitting down and tankering? Not really. You know what I'm using now is it's back here uh, is the quad cortex. the neural yes. So that's been a great fly rig for me because it fits in my backpack and it's everything that I need. It's great tone. It goes direct. It's got everything that I need right there uh, for recording. I, know, I was actually recording when you, uh, that's why I was a little bit late because I was, yeah, yeah. did it one joint. But I, I, I've got a Kemper here that's got some great presets to it that I like to record with. I can go direct out so I can get a direct signal too. Yeah. Uh, I don't like getting in and programming too much, not especially on the Kemper. It's a little bit, and the Axe FX especially, there's a lot of buttons and a lot of, you know, the Axe FX is probably uh the one i use the least but there's some good cleans on there that i'll still use for some recording yeah uh, but the kemper is is just out of ease but for live it's the quad cortex because it's all super it's touch you know this will go here this goes in your chain here and touch this and the, yeah. the knobs are here it's not a lot of you know let's so, say the DSPs. 
the quad cortex is fucking awesome. So with with violence now, like what's what's your setup? Just that's what I use on the fly dates. I, actually, okay. that's what I'm using is the yeah uh, EVH. You can see them all over here. Yep. So uh, a lot of EVH stuff. Uh, I'm loving the the EL34, which is right there. There. <laughs> the EL34 head. I'm digging. That's the stealth heads are great. The uh, this fifty this fifty water, the cleans on that are so good. I'll use those for like the Merkin shows because they're okay. small. Yeah. Because the power in the bar, it's like an eighty capacity bar, so you don't want to be drawn. You don't want because we have four guitar players. You know, people come up and join us, and uh, you don't want to be drawing four hundred watt. You know, watts from power. What's the? Do you find the tube screamer kind of an essential piece, like just just to add a little extra bite for your leads, or? Nope. Nope. With the uh, for the fifty one fifty, the uh, the PD fifty one fifty. This is my one from back in the torque days. So this is early early nineties here. Uh, so I use one with that. You need some gain with that with the fifty one fifty. And there's uh, PD has the uh, the Invective one twenty. I think that's the uh, the Misha amp Misha okay. from Paris. So that needs that needs some extra gain, and that's a that's a cool head too. Right there. <laughs> have you um have you ever sold a piece of gear that you regretted? Yeah, my first real guitar was an Ibanez Destroyer, and I had put a this is early eighties is like eighty three. I had a Kaler put on it, mounted on it. So um, I saw Ronnie Montrose, and he had the Kaler, you know, and everything was surface mounted, and the fine tuners were. You know, uh, and I sold that right before Violence did our first record, I think. So, yeah, that I love that. It was the Candy Apple Metallic Red, Phil Collin model, Adrian yeah. Smith model, you know, Adrian Smith. It was that model. And it was, that was first real guitar that I bought. And uh, I wish I didn't sell that. I don't sell gear now, really. No. <laughs> I, I, get, I get so much for free that, you know, I can't, I can't, I can't sell shit like that. It's just bad juju, you know? It's like, I've got a lot of guitar friends that all, if I see it, me not using it, then I'll, it'll get put to use or whatever. But Yeah. When you're younger and need money, it's a, it's a different story. <laughs> different. That's not the case now. Yeah. Um, you you uh you do, you've done a lot of work filling in for bands. Some people might joke and say filling in for bands is really cool because then you don't have to get involved in the band politics. Yeah, I mean, it's been it's been my thing recently, and uh, um, it's it's exhausting in the sense of um, you know learning so many songs. There was a point in the summer of 21 that I, I had on my wall, I had a Devin Townsend, a Devin Townsend set that I was, I was going to play with him, but I, the quarantine shut that down. Yeah. I had a uh, metal allegiance 20 songs set. I had, uh, I was going to maybe do a gig with Testament. So that was another 15 songs. I had the overkill set. Uh, Lama God had reached out to me, so I had the Lama God set to be in their bullpen. Uh, I had a Metal Allegiance, I had a Merkin set that I was doing. Yeah. And 
there was like 176 songs or something that I had was ready to go with, you know. Yeah. It's it post and once that I had some PTSD from from all of that and so you know you have to you have to delete some files to upload more files and yeah uh try to pick and choose there's been uh, a lot of opportunities recently my wife's band is working a lot bleeding through is doing some shows so i'm trying yeah. to i'm not out with violence right now I'm, I'm dialing that back um so just kind of learning to say no do you do you find with age one of the things i noticed playing guitar it's a little more work to memorize things. Do you find that? No. So that must I, be my hockey concussions. I don't know, man. It's I maybe it's just all the exercise that my brain has been getting on and learning how to retain movements of songs or something. So I think that it's I've always been pretty good about remembering some stuff. Machine head meet and greets, I would try to memorize everybody's name, 30 people as they come through and then try to hit their names after. And I would do pretty good at that. And it just yeah. became a, I don't know, a, a fun thing to do or an exercise to do or. It's, you know, it's well-documented. You spoke at length. You filled in for Slayer, Lamb of God, uh, some different projects or whatever, but you did a fill-in gig for Testament, didn't you? No, I was, there was a, it was a weird opportunity for them. They were going to do, they were up for doing a, a corporate gig for the NFL or something like that. And Alex wasn't going to be able to make it. It was a Raider. It was like a okay. Raider kickoff Monday night football thing. And uh, I'm a Raider fan and all those guys, you know, know that I was a Raider fan. So it was just kind of a novelty. Hey, that'd be fun if we got this show type of deal. So uh, I went up and jammed with Eric and learned some of the songs and, you know, those are Alex solos, you know, so <laughs> a little bit of work going into that's, that. That's, that's yeah. Every note was not going to be hit. So yeah. uh, um, it was more of a, a novelty in, in that sense cool just a couple more phil and then uh, uh we're good man we're good good okay. uh if you could go back in time and spend five minutes with phil demel in 1988 what would you sit down and tell him man i would say you know appreciate what's happening right now and don't take for granted that it's always going to be here or that you know we thought that we thought that, man, this is great. We're just doing records, getting advances and touring. This is just where this is going to be our life, you know, or too good. With, you know, I tell myself to, you know, take advantage. Don't take take it for granted and live more in the moment and don't have so many aspirations for, you know, things that you should just be enjoying now. Okay. Um, what does a musician need uh, for support from a partner? So, a lot of people might be like uh, have a hard time understanding that, but really you need a supportive person to make things work. Uh, I'm not trying to do subliminal messaging here, Phil, but I'll give you an example. I've packed up my rock and roll dreams and sent them off many years ago. But if I got a call from Phil Demel saying we're in Montreal or other guitar player broke his arm, can you come down here and do this? I would expect a hundred percent. Like I have a wonderful partner. She's an amazing woman. I know she'd say, do what you got to do. It's a, it's, this is a, you know, a once opportunity thing. Um, in relationships, partners, or what, what do you really need for it to really happen? I, well, I mean, above anything, you need honesty and you need that open, you know, be able to say anything and don't withhold anything, you know? Um, but, if, you know, I'm really fortunate in the sense that Marta's 
been in a touring band for just about as long as I have. And so she gets it. She knows, she knows all the feelings about, you know, what it, what it means and what it takes and what it's about. So I don't think there's ever been that sense of, you know, not understanding or the support she's, you know, you have to have that support and the understanding. Um, that being said, you know, I, we had a, a child before in 2016 and 2015, how old is he? 2016 and that's right when the catharsis tour was turning out so our our son wolf was born and for the most of that time i wasn't around and we had also bought a bar you know we bought a business and uh so she was she was spearheading that because she was managing the bar before we took it over so she's the brains in that you know um so she's taking care of the bar and getting the kids to school and and doing all this so when <clears throat> you say, if I got that call, you know, we were wrapping up the machine head tour and we played our last show. I had quit previously, but I honored the tour. And so we did the last show and uh, she came out to it and, you know, I'd been gone for a while. So I'm like, you come out, I'm going to drive home. You come out and get, so she got, she got tore up, man. She was in the pit. She was in the wall of death. She was, uh, you know, she was hunting and fishing, you know, one eye this way, one of the, she, she threw up all over my cousin, <laughs> wheeled her backstage on a road case. Just, she, I couldn't get her off from the couch after. So I pile her into my truck. I got like a Dexter kill room all set up with towels so she could, you know, and so wake up the next morning and uh, she's coming to, it's like, all right, babe, I'm home, you know, I don't, I don't know what's gonna happen next but you know here it's i'm, I'm here to get shit started and, and be here and then i look at my phone and it's carrie king you know and it's hey this is not even 24 hours you know i'm not even home 24 hours and it's like hey we have this situation can you come out and be in germany and become yeah. oh yeah and but I that's, a, that's a that's a once in a lifetime opportunity yeah so and so i dropped the phone and she and she got it she's all and i showed it to her she's like you gotta go yeah have to go so last okay no no absolutely uh this is the last one phil it is tough but i think this will be good for musicians young musicians starting out there for good. your wisdom uh can you play in a business band with friends and still remain friends i know for me in business bands the dynamic changes from fun bands i know i it's affected some of my friendships with people over the years is it possible yeah it's only totally possible i think that you know um money changes people you know and and money doesn't change some people so it's, it's all about who you choose to be in business with and that has to be a part of who you choose to be in a band with it can't just be hey, this guy's an awesome guitar player we write music together those personalities have to be cohesive in all phases of the business or you know it's not going to work but i think it's possible that it does i've been in situations where where you know where it has worked you know business-wise or it's but there's always those fluid parts that change over time and situations oh the gigs are good or the gigs are shitty and the money's good but it's you know it's all that amalgamation of of everything coming together and staying together and yeah. most important part of any relationship is that communication and that ability to move and be fluid as well and know what the other person people they them whatever <laughs> needs to to continue and for that for that to work so awesome this so, is with my wife and we make music together too so we you know it is possible we're doing it so yeah i know that's awesome man 
Bill, it was an absolute pleasure uh, to talk with you. I appreciate your time so much. Maybe we can do this again down the road. But again, thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Right. Guys, remember, practice hard, but practice smart. No excuses. We'll see you soon.